This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. It's the Global Thought Leader Insights. Brilliant thinking implemented. Brought to you by Internal Consulting Group. I'm Mark S.A. Smith. As a leader of your company, you must stay on top of your industry or risk obsolescence. This can be a daunting task. Get ready to solve your biggest challenges and learn how to capitalize on your biggest opportunities after this. Executives depend on external advisors to fill knowledge and experience gaps, to help them make a case for change, or to have an experienced mind audit their thinking. Internal Consulting Group brings together a wide range of proven thought leaders from around the globe and makes them available to you. Get access to insights, advice, and the tools you need to succeed. Learn more at internalconsulting.com. My guest today is Jerry Purcell, who is formerly with Boston Consulting and A.T. Kearney, now the Toronto practice leader of Internal Consulting Group, a global group of consultants that lead with a 21st century approach to consulting and project management services. ICG complements the capacity and capability of its clients and seamlessly integrates into existing internal consulting and project teams to deliver the very best combination of internal and external resources in the most effective and agile way. ICG has offices in Toronto, London, Paris, Munich, Brussels, Stockholm, Sydney, Singapore, Melbourne, Auckland, New York City, Copenhagen, and Zurich. And as a full disclosure, I am a member of the internal consulting group practicing in the area of customer acquisition strategy. I've invited Jerry to the show to talk about the blind spots that executives have so that we can create disruption by eliminating those executive blind spots. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks for uh, the invitation. You've been working with executives for a very long time in a lot of different areas of consulting to help eliminate those blind spots. All organizations have cultures that promote blind spots which ultimately leads to failure. And all innovation comes from eliminating those blind spots. Our conversation in the past led me to that conclusion. What do you see are the big blind spots of executives? It isn't about ideas. It's about execution. 
And so the execution typically falls into five categories. Uh, one is uh, around the labor and the individuals mm-hmm. that you have within your domain. Second is the information that you have about your markets and the research and the background materials that you collect. The third is how you go about things, the methodologies and approaches. The fourth is the, the level of professional development and learning that is part of the culture of your organization. And uh, the fifth is the infrastructure around how you operate, where you get your information from, how you do that, a lot of the other sort of less uh, exciting things, but equally as important in terms of how you accomplish your goals. That makes sense. So what you're telling me is that most companies have great ideas. (laughs) The innovation actually comes from how they execute on the ideas that they have. Yeah. It's also how they choose through this large number of ideas that they have to focus on the ones that are going to be the most effective and then be successful in terms of making those a reality. Yeah, a lot of people have blind spots because they think they're doing it well. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so how can we detect those blind spots? Or is that something that's even possible for somebody to do without a third party coming in who hasn't bought into the culture? Certainly would be self-serving to say you need to have a third party help you through the process. And I think in some cases that's true, particularly in organizations that have been very successful in the past. There may be some resistance to thinking about different ways of doing things or some concern about the implications that those changes might have on the performance of the organization, fat and happy kind of stuff where there's been lots of money made and there's some risk that money flow might stop if we do something to change things. But having said that, there are ways of thinking about the way that organizations operate, be it how they are structured and what kind of capabilities are deployed to what kind of innovations are taking place and why to the nature of the way that individual organizations are listening to the market and a number of other things like that. There are tools and techniques to to look at that and often having a third party help with that or drawing upon some of the thinking that's out there in the broader domain can be really, really powerful in terms of getting to the bottom of what's holding an organization back. Indeed. Well, of course, you've made your living primarily by being that trusted third party coming in and asking, why are you doing it that way? You know, hey, stupid questions. Yet you also work with internal consulting organizations because a lot of companies have internal consultants that come in and fulfill those roles. Frequently, you partner with those groups. Yeah, and there's a lot of good reasons why internal strategy and consulting and project management and whatever groups uh, exist inside organizations because often the outside firms are very expensive um, and you have to be strategic, I guess, about where you're investing your funds and where it's appropriate to have an outside entity and where it's more appropriate to have an inside one. Having said that, the internal consulting groups still need the same, I call it the love, that they need to have the necessary resources to have access to the leading thinking, to, uh, in effect, think about consulting in the way that the craft has evolved over time. A number of different things that an organization like internal consulting group can assist, not by darkening the skies with consultants and and bringing in hundreds of people, but by strategically and very directly assisting in terms of capabilities that don't exist or need to be developed inside your organization. A good consultant always works themselves out of a job instead of finding more and more work to do. (laughs) That doesn't always happen. A lot of organizations in the past have paid enormous sums of money, seven, eight figure, nine figures to have consultants come in and help them break through. And I think what makes a major difference between ICG, Internal Consulting Group, and others is it really is targeted at the mid-market where you don't need to have that much money. You can actually get things done for four digits, five digits, six digits is a big project. We can now bring some extraordinary management strategies 
and tools to companies who need to accelerate, but just in the past couldn't. How did ICG move into this particular market space? How did this get started? Well, the market itself is changing, and we like to think of ourselves as part of that disruption. Having said that, the availability of talent and what has come to be called liquid labor has dramatically changed the way that things operate. And so the traditional ways of engaging a third party or even in running your business as a business owner or a leader have changed quite a bit. And so ICG connects the supply of labor, this liquid labor that is made up of many, many more independents than it used to be in the past and smaller boutiques type firms and connects them with the demand. And in the context of a sort of medium size uh, to sort of low end, large size organization, they don't often have access to that kind of resource, particularly from the tier one firms. And so what ICG does as well is to bring to bear talent that perhaps spent some time in these larger firms in the past and now has, you know, 15, 20, 30 years experience in the business and can be brought to bear to help organizations that think through issues, but not with the traditional pyramid approach and not really at the price point that the larger firms would charge because they have a lot more infrastructure that has to be brought to bear to assist. So just a much simpler way of engaging. It brings to bear much more experienced individuals, much more targeted assistance. It provides access to services that would not have been available in the past to mid-sized organizations. In the world of ICG, the folks that I have been exposed to as I've become part of the organization blow my mind. How have you been able to round up these extraordinary people? It's a little bit of luck, I guess, but, but also we provide a collective environment where individual practitioners can have trusted relationships within the uh, the marketplace. And for those who are thought leaders, often based on years of experience and research, we also provide a mechanism to distribute their intellectual capital, which they would have to build themselves. The Norton and Kaplan's of the world that developed the balanced scorecard have had to build their own infrastructure. And what ICG does is provides that infrastructure, but also provides a community of professionals that can provide support and the sort of business social aspects of being a consultant because being an independent consultant or a small boutique can be kind of isolating. And so what it also does is provides a similar kind of community of interest that you would have in a large firm where ideas can be shared, IP can be developed as a group, teams of consultants can focus on core industry issues together, whereas an independent organization or a small boutique might not be able to do that or have the geographic reach to be able to have conversations with clients you know, broadly about these issues. So what we're really talking about is two components of ICG listener. One is, you know, as an executive, do you need some help with your blind spots if you're not performing <laughs> as well as you think you might, or you'd like to just stay ahead of disruption and like to do disruption? Or if you happen to be somebody with skills and you have a solo practice, perhaps this is a way for you to expand your reach and join a professional organization that does this in a vetted and meaningful way. So, Jerry, I like the place where you took that particular conversation. Let's get back to the concept of liquid labor. In my new book, I talk a lot about how we are moving to the world of subscriptions, where a lot of organizations are not buying, they're renting or leasing. <laughs> and that includes talent. That includes liquid labor. So share with me some of your insights and how this pivot has gone from this concept of owning employees to renting employees. And you're calling it liquid labor. 
Yeah, in the old days, probably not that long ago, labor pools inside organizations, big and small, were made up of a couple of different kinds of labor, you know, full-time staff, part-time staff, perhaps some contingent labor, but mostly contract people or small engagements with outside consultants, that kind of stuff. But it was relatively easy, and the mix between people who were yours, so to speak, your staff, and outside was skewed towards yours, and the process was quite simple. The marketplace has changed quite a bit in that regard over the last, say, 15 or 20 years, there's a move towards a much more fluid mix of employees and professionals where organizations don't hold the capacity that they used to to be able to deal with non-business as usual issues. On a day-to-day, there's less of a mix of those in a sort of domain, but over time, we need now to bring in many more independent or contingent laborers to help do business strategies, crises that take place, uh, you know, you bring in a bunch of people around a privacy issue, whatever the thing is, and that makes the way that an organization has to manage itself way more complex. What we offer certainly is the contingent labor to be able to fill those gaps. But what we also do is help organizations to think about their liquid labor. Broadly, the labor pool is made up of four different quadrants. It's about whether the task that's being completed is complex or transactional. And then the other dimension is whether the work that's being done is proprietary or not. It really defines whether you bring in outside labor to help you to do the work that you need to do through a service provider or whether you look to bring in a consultant to assist with a more complex issue or whether you maintain a pool of labor that you employ that deals with things that are both strategically yours and so therefore you don't want third parties involved with it, competitors or providers, or you can focus attention from an efficiency perspective on automating those within your internal workforce. So those mixes are a much more complex way of thinking about labor and so what we try to do is to help organizations make their way through that challenge and set up an appropriate mix and a process of managing those resources. On the other side of things, individuals are much more inclined to have multiple careers through their broader work life. And so individuals are often in and out of roles. Mm-hmm. We call it the gig economy. So what's happening on the demand side is that it's getting much more complex for companies. And on the supply side, there's a lot more interest through the labor force in all the different domains. The millennials and the categories of labor are all moving towards a much more of this gig economy, this sort of independent, multiple career path type arrangements. The third thing I think is important is because of the flattening of the supply, there aren't entities that really represent the interests of the broader labor pool, both from the point of view of accreditation, but also from the point of view of protection. Because it used to be that everyone worked for the company and the company had a a certain fiduciary responsibility for the individual employee staying whole financially and getting the right kind of advice around their lives. Now when there's so much contingent labor that that actually doesn't exist in many ways for that contingent part of the labor pool. And so partly what ICG is about is helping to provide the underlying accreditation and a signal to the market of quality, but also providing an environment where over time there could be some representation of the employees. Because what we think is that over time that um, the old guilds Mm -hmm. that were built around the industrial revolution will reemerge because there will be a whole bunch of independent employees and companies that are deploying them, but nobody really who acts on behalf of the really important point. This idea that contingent labor is no longer protected, they're not accredited. I agree with you. I think we're moving more and more back to a series of tribes. And I mean that the most loving sense of people, guilds. I like the word guild here. We're looking after each other and we're also making sure that we hold each other to a certain level of standard. 
there's room for people to head those guilds and to launch those guilds and reconnect with those guilds. I like it. We'll be back with more after this. The world is moving fast. It's difficult to keep up. Your executive team needs new ideas to keep them ahead of the competition. Download and share the Internal Consulting Group's monthly executive magazine, The Insights Review. Every issue includes thought leadership and ideas that you can leverage to solve issues and harvest opportunities facing you. Get your complimentary copy from internalconsulting.com slash publications. I also think it's important, listener, for you to understand the conversation that Jerry went through about the concept of complex versus transactional and proprietary or not. That model can allow an executive to very rapidly decide who is most suitable and where there's opportunity to outsource safely or outsource to enhance. Yep. And I think it's really important to have conversations around that. And in the short duration of the Selling Disruption show, we really can't go terribly deep. Executive, if this resonates with you, I highly recommend that you connect with Jerry and have a conversation. Let's talk for a moment about researching about markets. What do you see as blind spots where companies do research about what they do next? We think about it in the context of just broader innovation. So one of the areas that I would call a blind spot in innovation is the horizons within which mm -hmm. innovation is being considered. So what I mean by that is there basically are three. There's the near term, there's the sort of mm -hmm. medium term, and then the long term. And a lot of companies understand that they need to be thinking about the longer term, but many, 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 99% really focus on the short term. And so a blind spot is to be thinking about your future in the context <laughs> of the past. That's, that's um, really good. You're right. I think if you were to go the other way around and focus 99% on the longer term, that would also be a problem. What is currently the case is that something in the order of 99% say are focused on that first horizon, which is sort of the current state. And if they were able to spend some more time thinking, you know, maybe it's 85% versus 15 or something about the future, that would be much more appropriate. One of the things around innovation is it's kind of the new buzzword, but we've been talking about innovation for, well, mm -hmm. longer than I've been around probably. It had different titles, different nomenclature. We are very married to the way things are today, and many of the decisions that we make are clouded by that understanding. That sort of historic view doesn't necessarily hold true in terms of the conclusions you're going to get when you actually have to think forward. And there's a paradigm of the Swiss watchmakers who held on to the concept of the way watches were made, and then the watchmaking uh, industry yeah, bypassed. Absolutely right. An example uh, I like to use, Jerry, is um, the Merck manual used in the world of medicine. The Merck manual defines state of care for how do you handle specific diseases? And if you used a hundred year old Merck manual, which was at that time state of care, and if you use those same treatments today, you'd go to jail for malpractice. And so methodology is a moving target. And I guarantee if I brought you a doctor sat in front of this microphone from a hundred years ago, he's going to say, you must use mercury to take care of syphilis. If you did that today, you'd go to jail. 
that's an important way of thinking about things because there's lots of examples of where people, organizations uh, of all stripes have been very engaged and embedded in an old way of thinking. Innovation requires that we think about things outside the box a bit and not crazy, take the company out of business stuff, but thinking about where the market is going. You know, we talk about liquid labor as an example. I think there are dramatic differences in the way that large organizations and small will operate given the labor pool and given the way the market is that uh, are driven by all sorts of things other than labor, cyber security, some of the crises, some of the economic changes in the marketplace are all driving changes in businesses, which Mm -hmm. drive changes in organizations. And we have to make sure that we get our arms around what's coming and make the appropriate adjustments to our model, or at least think about things in a longer term context. One of the things that you shared with me uh, in some of our past conversations is this notion of those horizons as being market chasers, need seekers, and technology innovators. So we have a way of thinking about innovation that draws upon the thought leadership of a number of different academics across the world and packages it up into a broader framework. So one of those frameworks is around innovation and types of innovation. So those three that you talked about are the need seekers, the market readers, and the technology drivers. And innovation is about improving your competitive position. So it's really about understanding your market, but there's different ways of approaching it. So the need seeker is really looking at opportunities by understanding Mm -hmm. what the end users want. The market reader is finding opportunities that already exist and capitalizing on those. And the third one is probably more around Horizon 2 and 3 than the others, which is driving for a breakthrough rather than incremental changes based on technology. What we find is that neither one of those three is the Mm -hmm. answer for everybody. And so it's really about understanding what your market is and what's the most appropriate. We try to figure out what the correlation is between what the broader organizational strategy is and what's the appropriate style of innovation that would be applied to that. And we have um, a significant amount of data, I think 6,000 plus companies, where we can understand how the company that we're looking at compares to their peers in industry, their peers geographically, their peers from a whole bunch of different dimensions in terms of how they look at the need focus, what kind of innovations are should be taking priority, whether they should be focusing on reestablishing their vision. Is it about production? Is it about the execution of the changes? All those sorts of things that are really part of the innovation There's so many different factors to keep in mind. As you point out, it's very dependent upon the company and their ability to innovate. But without innovation, you will be disrupted. It's just a matter of time. It's a balance of the three. If we take a look at the world from a hedge fund approach, with a hedge fund meaning when one asset comes down, another asset goes up, and it balances out the risk in the portfolio, we can do the same thing when it comes to a product or service portfolio within an organization. And the need seeker is going to give us some very rapid returns if we can deliver a better, more innovative thing to the initial needs what customers want right now. But we know customers are fickle. They are a moving target. What they love today, they will hate tomorrow. If you're just getting into the world of fidget spinners, it's probably too late for you. You've missed that one. And yet tech innovation also takes time. It takes a long time to put those things together. Working that blend between these three create a sustainable, disruptive organization. Thoughts? Yes, and I think the pendulum can swing both ways inside an organization. It can swing to all sorts of 
cool new ideas that could be disruptive of the marketplace and whatever, but lose connection with the actual business, uh, the sort of ongoing business as usual business that is paying all the bills. On the other side, it can be very incrementally focused and focused on the sort of business as usual business without thinking about the future or dramatic transformational changes in the marketplace. And where it meets is in what we would talk about is sort of uh, the prioritization mechanism around ideation so that when individual organizations are thinking about change, how do they decide which ones are going to do? And how do they make sure that there's a connection with the longer term strategy of the organization that they're picking the right ones? Because also with that pendulum swing, there can be a focus on trying to do too many things at once. And that means that nothing gets done properly. It's not really about there being good ideas because there's all sorts of good ideas. And so it's really not just about that. It's about what do you do with them when you have them and how do you decide which ones are the most likely to have an impact on your organization, which ones are going to have a return that's positive. There are organizations that are really good at generating ideas, but very poor at selecting the ones they should pursue. Also ones that are really good at pursuing ideas to the ground. They tie their <laughs> their horse to a particular wagon and, and that wagon just flies apart. Probably a too old of a metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> People understand. The thing that I find very cool in the context of innovation connects back to the structure and the individual people that are part of the organization as well. And so we call them personas. And so one of the things that's really interesting when you look at an organization is what is the mix of types of people and the characteristics within which they operate that an organization has? And is there the appropriate mix and do you have enough of what is required? An example is around risk. So we have a persona we call a hurdler. And a hurdler is somebody who's a tireless problem solver who's looking to overcome stuff, whatever the cost is. And an organization that's going through change has to have some amount of those types of people or nothing is going to change. And at the same token, they can't have 100% of them because there would be chaos. Some elements of the right kinds of people in the right mix that one has to consider, and part of that is sort of understanding what kind of change you're trying to make, but also are you a risk-averse organization? Do you have the right kind of mix, that kind of stuff? I just find that fascinating, and it's not something that organizations think about typically, but it's a really important thing, as important as capability is. It's important to talk about this concept of risk-aversion. That is absolutely cultural within an organization. It's instantiated by the top and trickles all the way down. The challenge that we face in changing cultures with this is we're essentially changing the rules of the game while the game is being played. And for a lot of people, that's a really hard thing to imagine. We have to disrupt ourselves if we're going to disrupt the market. And that's hard on a lot of people. What's been your experience in working with organizations when we do this kind of rule change in the middle of the game? So what comes to mind is a way that I think about change and the sort of key principles that are necessary for change to get embedded in an organization. And if you look at it from a leadership perspective, there are really five things. The first one is that it's about the leader. You have to set the right environment. You have to create an environment that has the potential to change and that you provide the necessary resources uh, for the organization to accomplish what has to happen because you play a big role in the change. And if you're not going to change, then how can you expect and the organization people today, to do that? And people today can uh, detect if you are not walking the talk. 
Yes. The other one borrows from a famous phrase that says, uh, don't let the culture eat your strategy. And so that's the other side of things. So there is always going to be resistance. And so the question is, how do you communicate your aspirational changes that you want to make and make sure that it addresses the, the tribe as you describe it and that it lands with them around what you're trying to accomplish and what the implications are for them and why it's good in the organization and managing that change in culture in effect so that you can meet your strategic objectives. The other thing is to be transparent. Making change is really difficult, but you have to be really open and clear about where you're trying to go. And people have to understand how they fit. How is it going to work? How does it affect me? What are criteria using for success? How can I get an opportunity to sort of be part of that change as a player in your organization? The fourth one, if you want to execute change or you want to move to another place, mm-hmm. you have to be it. There are two or three levels of how people engage in organizations. One of them is around what has to get done. The second one is how they do it. But the third one, and the most powerful one, is actually being it. So if you want to be the leading organization in your industry, well, right. do it. <laughs> be it. And if you think about it in that context, it actually drives you to do things mm-hmm. you wouldn't have done. And the last one is enabling people in terms of the current cultural environment, providing those who might be constrained by financial resources or capability or whatever it is to basically play a role in the change. And that's a really critical part of the change process as well. To me, those are the five things that I, in the past, recommended to clients of mine that they really had to think about in terms of a change exit. Well, I think that's a really great surprise, five ways to dealing with change that, that I didn't expect for us to bring up. Jerry, it's really great stuff. The point I want to really make here, this last point that you made, which is enabling people in terms of current culture. In my experience, and I think this maps to yours as well, anytime there's radical transformation, radical disruption in an organization, a third of the uh, the folks just aren't going to make it. They're just incapable of making it. They need to retire. They, <laughs> they need to be placed in other roles. And as you point out, if they have some financial constraints, you just don't want to throw them out of the company. In those particular cases, what you may just want to do is have them isolated as operating and winding down the legacy business. And then a third of the people are going to be on the fence. And they're going to say, we'll see how this goes. And a third of the people are going to be like, woohoo, wow, what took you so long? I, I thought I was going to have to leave, but I, you know, this is where I'm really wanting to go. What we have to do as leaders working people through change is to isolate that third that can't make it as quickly as possible relocating, whatever we have to do. And I think that's really an important thing to call out. And then we can recruit that other middle third being led by the third that just can't wait to go that direction. Uh, Your thoughts? Yeah, we could actually have another whole hour conversation about this, but the... And so just let us know if you'd like to have that hour conversation with Jerry. We'll break it into a two-part show. (laughs) We'll do We're going to do a little need seeker here, okay? (laughs) So the the quick answer is that often change does not consider that 30% you're talking about. If you draw from history, the changes in the introduction of the horse's carriage, for example, had dramatic changes in terms of the people who would have been involved in saddle right. making. Uh, and those, those individuals uh, who didn't buy into the change, there's sort of research that says that for several generations afterwards, it had an economic impact on those families. For those who bought into the change or who were able to be sort of brought into the tent and through the principles I was just talking about, they actually did very well and they became the people rather than making saddles, they made cars. It was the coach it was. works. Actually, um, those that made carriages turned into coach works for automobiles. 
And they became very successful through that, in fact, much more successful than they were as saddle makers. It's kind of understanding that. And I think the challenge and the problem we have in some of today's environment when we're making changes, we don't think about those 30%. And we really should. And we should have a plan for it. And if someone's going to make a multi-billion dollars on a new industry, they need to think about well, what they're going to do with the 30% right. that aren't going to survive. look after that because they can kill the organization if you don't take care of them, if you don't have a plan for them. And a great point for us to wrap up this episode of the Selling Disruption Show. Jerry, how can our listener get a hold of you? So the best way is uh, email, I think. Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y dot Purcell, P-U-R-C-E-L-L at internalconsulting.com. And also to offer any of the listeners an opportunity to sign up for our Insights Review publication, which uh, provides a synthesis of uh, broader industry changes going on globally every month. It's uh, very valued by our network, and I think you'd find it quite interesting as well. Send me an email, and I'll get you set up. And listener, I highly recommend that you sign up for that Insights. It is world-class, executive-level synopsis of the trends and insights you need to know. Just getting that document alone is going to help you manage to eliminate the blind spots that are going to creep up on you. Jerry, this conversation has been absolutely a delight. Thank you for joining me and sharing your insights with our listener. Thank you for the invitation. That wraps up today's show. To reach out to Jerry Purcell, dial 416-200-2338, or you can send him an email at Jerry. Purcell at internalconsulting.com. That's Jerry with a G. Purcell at internalconsulting.com. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.